Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Amen. All right. Well, we are in Acts chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, you might turn there. We're working our way through. And just to kind of set the stage and remind you a little of where we've been, uh, Acts picks up right kind of at the end of Jesus' life. Jesus uh, lays down his life upon a cross. He goes off that cross into a tomb. He's there for three days and then he punches death in the face and walks out of the tomb. He walks then for 40 days amongst Jerusalem, amongst the people and uh, over 500 people testify that they saw Jesus and he teaches them about the kingdom of God and then they see him ascend into heaven and as he goes to the, as he heads to the right hand of the Father in heaven, he tells them to wait until the Spirit descends and the Spirit comes on them and when the Spirit comes, he's going to give them power to go be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so that's kind of Acts 1, and then Acts 2, they're waiting and they're praying and the Spirit comes down. And there's this amazing occurrence that happens, and at the end of that time when uh, the, the miraculous descent of the Spirit shows up, Peter stands up and uh, thousands of people have gathered and Peter delivers a sermon, and that's where we're going to pick up the story today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to actually start in verse 40. It says, and with many other words, Peter bore witness, continuing to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So that all those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at this word, it's interesting that uh, when you go back to verse 40, it talks about what Peter, uh, Peter was, was sharing. And we, look, we looked last week at Peter's sermon and the message that he gave. And you notice in verse 40, it says, all who received his word, all who received the message that Peter gave, all who received the gospel truth that Peter had distilled uh, were baptized and added to the number. So they started with 120 believers, and then it says added to the number. That day were 3,000 believers, and people have actually done the research to figure out where were all these people baptized, and how long would it have taken, and who all baptized them? Was it all 120, or just the 12, or how, you know, they, because it would have been an amazing scene if you think about the ripple through the city of all the things that were taking place as this happened. But we know just a couple days later, another 2,000 
are going to be added to their number. So 120, you add 3,000, you add another 2,000, and you see this beginning of a movement that takes place that just begins to expand throughout the known world. What's fascinating is that it soon spread outside of Jewish circles and began to go to other groups and other regions and began to ripple throughout all of the known world at that time. In fact, the growth pattern continued to uh, increase at such an exponential rate throughout the Roman Empire that historians look back and scratch their heads and continue to study how in the world did this happen? Because it, it almost defies explanation how exponentially and how quickly the church exploded on the scene and began to change all of human history. That continued for 2,000 years and it continues even to today. And this moment literally, or movement literally changed the entire world. Now what's interesting is if you look at the movement, it didn't play, take place through a, a powerful or charismatic or totalitarian leader. It didn't come place or take place through a military through military might. It didn't take place through uh, political power or, or intrigue. It didn't take place through any kind of a technological advance or entrepreneurial uh, kind of newness that took place in the world. It really happened uh, just word of mouth through groups of people who went person by person, street by street, neighborhood by neighborhood, city by city, sharing the good news of the gospel, and then baptizing those people and connecting them into these little huddles of people that became communities that were centered around Jesus and his teachings and his way of life. And as they gathered huddle after huddle after huddle, it rippled throughout all of the world and changed all of human history. That's interesting to me that it happened through such a simple strategy. Uh, th there was not some business mindset that pressed down and said, we've got the marketing coup of the universe to put into this thing to make this thing grow. But it almost is spontaneously happening as people, individuals, are experiencing new life birthed in them and then a new community surrounding them. And those things began to multiply and it happened over and over and over. Why? Why did this work? Well, I think if you look just a little bit earlier in Acts 2, you actually see why. And in fact, it says that when Peter preached his message, what is it that happened to the people in verse 27? It says, now when they heard his message, they were what? They were cut to the heart. They were pierced to the very core. When the Bible talks about the heart, it means the, the very center of your person, the core of who you are. They were somehow pierced into the very core of their being. In verse 42, it talks about kind of what are the church is gonna be and what happens in all these gatherings when they get together. But you notice this is and they or so that they, meaning that everything that happens after that was because of what happened before. So the fact that they were cut to the heart and responded by faith, every, that's what began this new life. And what we're gonna look at today is what did that produce? That when that happens, when someone's cut to the heart with the power of God and with the gospel and they respond in faith, what does that produce? What follows after that? And we're gonna look at that, but you can't run past it because that's the thing that gave it life, was the fact that something happened. They were cut to the heart and that was the grounds of them devoting themselves to do all the things that came afterwards. Now it's interesting, being cut to the heart is not the same thing as following your heart, is it? 
See, following heart, your heart assumes that whatever it is in here, that the key to life is just to let this out and chase after whatever it is. So if you feel this, you should run after this. If you desire something in here, you should run after and fulfill those desires. If you have an idea of what your identity or your person or your core really is, you should embrace that and hold on to that as much as you possibly can because to lose it is to lose who you are. And what the scriptures say is something totally different. It doesn't say follow your heart. It says, that you need to be cut to the heart. Now, to be cut to the heart means something from outside of you penetrated into you. Something that was harder than you cut into who you are. There was an external something, uh, force that was applied to them, a surgical device that invaded their hearts and brought about something new, which is, a, which is an interesting concept in our day and in our world. Now, friends, let me say this. This is something only God can do. You know why people hate religion? It's because what religion is, is when some man comes along and says, you know what, I think I can do the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me try to cut into your heart. And so when men take man-made rules and they try to apply those as though they are God that have, have, have the ability to navigate your heart, it presses from the outside a control on you. This is not what, what the scriptures are talking about. It's not what Acts 2 is talking about. Acts 2, Peter freely preached the gospel message and the spirit of God through the power of the gospel pierced and penetrated their hearts. And that always produces healing and wholeness and flourishing in life. And so these people respond and they're enlivened with this. And what happens when that, in fact, Ezekiel 36 tells us uh, thousands of years before that that's what was going to happen. And God says, I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. Meaning I will take out that hard, crusty, impossible to move heart. And I will give you something that's breathing and alive and beating that's, uh, that, that's got some life to it. Um, and so that's why when they were cut to the heart, what do they immediately say? That when, it, when they experience that, they immediately look at Peter and they go, what should we do? He says, repent and be baptized. Receive the forgiveness of sins and receive the helper, the Holy Spirit that comes to you. That's why this group of, of now 3,120 people, soon to be 5,120 people, soon to be tens and, and hundreds of thousands of people in the months to come, uh, the, they were united by the fact that they, they shared the experience of having been cut to the heart with the conviction. They shared the experience of having trusted a savior who loved them and who died for them and gave his life for them. They shared the experience of having their sins forgiven and they shared the experience of having the same spirit sent to them as a helper to teach them and to transform them. And so they were united by all these things. They were bound together by a belief in the gospel. And so what we're gonna see today is that as they were bound together through this experience, they began to live out and seek what the implications of all the things they were learning really were. What were the implications of this gospel they believed? And they began working it out in the context of friendships that were marked by joy and by togetherness. Now friends, this is why I think Acts is so foundational for you and me today. Uh, when we look at these verses, Acts 2, 42 to 47 are kind of foundational for understanding this is what the church is supposed to be like. This is what happens when God births new life in people. He gives them a new day and he gives them a new community and he teaches them how to live in light of all the things that have happened to them. 
when they're cut to the heart and they begin to experience this new life. And so these verses are really gonna paint a picture for us of what, what this new life that we're supposed to experience in Jesus looks like. You with me? All right, so we're gonna look at this. And here's what we need to understand is that if we are cut to the heart like they were cut to the heart with the gospel, we should devote ourselves like they devoted themselves to the community of the church. If, if, if we experience the same thing they do, we should respond in a similar way. Verse, two, verse 42 says, they devoted themselves. That idea is of persistence, of, of perseverance in something. It's a group that just says, I'm gonna stick with it. I'm gonna stay at it. I'm going to devote myself, commit myself, run after these things. That's what it means to devote themselves to it. And so they're gonna devote themselves, it says, to the teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking bread, to the prayers. And we're gonna unpack what those things mean and look at some of these other things but but just kind of at the outset the way I think you need to understand it is they devoted themselves to the physical practices and exercises that were going to help them strengthen their faith so this faith that they had begun they were going to devote themselves to things that were going to exercise and strengthen that faith muscle so that they would understand what this faith and life of Jesus really looks like so let's take the first one uh, let's start with the teaching, uh, that they devoted themselves to, you notice it says the apostles' teaching. It's not just they devoted themselves to becoming intellectual. They didn't just devote themselves to some wise ideas or philosophy or some, some uh, you know, good books. They devoted themselves to a specific, it's the, it's particular, to the teaching. And it's interesting when you begin to think about this, what he's talking about really is, he's talking about doctrine. They devoted themselves to understanding that which the scriptures say is true and that which the church believed. And so what Peter introduced them to in his sermon and they believed, they received his word, it said, they are now going to devote themselves to greater understanding and deepener, deepen their belief in this word. So it starts off with the teaching. Later, the, the Christian's opponents will call it your teaching, meaning your teaching is identifiable enough and it's, it's solid enough that we understand you're teaching something different than we're teaching. You have this, this thing that you believe that we don't believe is what their opponents are gonna say. But what these disciples are going to do and this church is gonna do is they devoted themselves to the teaching. Now, let me just say this in case you're not aware, but doctrine and dogma are not very popular in our world. Like when you, when you look at things like what are the things that are truly fostered and admired in a world, being dogmatic is certainly not one of them, right? Like I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We're all, we're all very much aware of this, right? Now, you ever heard people say, even Christian people say, love unites, but doctrine what? Divides. You know, love unites, but doctrine divides. And people say these things, I read the deal as I was looking this week, he said, you know, God cares more about our deeds than our creeds. Uh, and, and so you hear these sayings and these things that sound really wise and they sound really, uh, really smart. And uh, you hear statements like these and they're pretty common in our world. The problem is that those statements themselves are actually pretty dogmatic, aren't they? God cares more about our deeds than our creeds. And you want to go, well, like, says who? It, that, that sounds like a doctrine. You have a doctrine that says that, that, that our actions matter more than our beliefs. You have a doctrine that says that, that, that our understanding of the scriptures is not as important as our treating of and acceptance of every ideology or every, uh, every moral idea in our world. That sounds pretty dogmatic for you to tell me I have to think that way, right? 
And it's interesting that we all have doctrines that we live by. We all have ways that we, that, that we foster our understanding of the world. And, um, and I think that's one of the questions we have to ask is, well, who's, who gets to say what God says? Well, we believe that God revealed himself through the scriptures. And so it's not our wisdom. It's ultimately the fact that we were actually cut to the heart by something outside of us that changed our understanding. And we actually surrendered and submitted to what God says to us. But people say, you know, who, who are you to say what's right and what's wrong? But the whole time they are often making a, an assertion that their view is the right one. Well, who are you to say that your views are right? And well, who are you to say that my views aren't? But th those arguments tend to cut both ways. And so as we begin to understand or, or wrestle with that, I think it's important to say, when you just, as Christians, look at what the scriptures say, we're those who devote ourselves to the teaching. And it was the, the apostles' teaching that we, had to, uh, that we had to embrace. But everyone ultimately lives by some kind of a doctrine. The question is not really uh, whether you operate in, with some kind of a doctrine or understanding of life. The question is, where do you turn? Or where do you discover and develop your, your belief system and your approach to the world? And for Christians, we say, man, we, we need some help. And so we believe that we must turn to God for that. Uh, some people, I think, even within Christian circles say things like, well, I'm not into doctrine. I'm just into Jesus and a relationship with him. Have you ever heard that one? As you talk to people, like, and I, I don't want to get into, I don't want to get into theology. I'm not, not a theologian. I'm just, I'm all about Jesus. Well, here's the interesting thing is you still have to deal with the real Jesus. And so if you look at Jesus, when Jesus was tempted, what did, we, what did Jesus say? It is written. When Jesus stood up to teach, what did Jesus say? It is written, you have heard it said. And he begins to deal with the things that were said. And when Jesus um, talked about his death, what did he say? I must die in order to fulfill that which was written. When Jesus, after he died and was resurrected, walked around with two guys on the road to Emmaus and had this conversation with them, and he's walking with them, uh, what did it say he did? It says, Jesus said, it is written, and he went back to, and it says he explained to them how everything in the scriptures from the law and the prophets pointed to him. And what did the two guys say after Jesus left? And they finished this time uh, of interacting with the risen Jesus. They said, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened to us the scripture? See, Jesus was committed to the teaching. Jesus was committed to the truth and he continued to do that. So there, there's no way for us to say that we're trusting Jesus apart from trusting the scriptures. Because to follow him is going to be to follow in his way. And so what we see in the early church is that they were more concerned with the teaching that God had given than they were with the prevailing winds of the cultural zeitgeist of the day. They were devoted to the teaching. It's interesting too, sometimes we see this uh, divided up in, in our world where it's like you, you have churches that say, well, we're just about the Holy Spirit. We wanna move with the Holy Spirit. We don't wanna be all about doctrine and theology. It's interesting that when the Holy Spirit descended in Acts 2, what happens? Their immediate deal, a response was, that they devoted themselves to the teaching. And so the Spirit didn't actually distract them from the teaching, the Spirit actually deepened their commitment to the teaching and to the Word and to the things that they believed. And so there was no dichotomy that was there, it actually was something that very much went. But teaching was at the very center of their church life. They shared a theological togetherness. Now why was it the apostles teaching? Well the apostles, uh, what we see the, as, as you work your way through the rest of the New Testament, the apostles were those that had been with Jesus, they had been taught by Jesus, and then they had been sent by Jesus into the world. And so they were the ones that would write scripture with the exception of the apostle Paul. 
the Apostle Paul, <coughs> excuse me, met Jesus on the road and was knocked off, uh, kind of in, in, just had the experience. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And, and so he was saved. And then he actually went out into the wilderness and spent three years learning directly from God, it says, through miraculous means. And so he actually spent three years learning as well before he came. But it's, uh, the scriptures say that it's on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets that all of the teaching was built. And so they were devoting themselves to the teaching of the scriptures. Now, um, Jude refers to this and says that it was the, the faith once and, all, once and for all delivered to the saints. Uh, we see in Ephesians, it talks about that, um, that the, the household of God was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so what it's saying is that the church has its very foundation on the truth of the scriptures, which is why the church devotes itself to the teaching. Because they want to understand if you're going to build a structure, you have to build it on a foundation. And the foundation, you don't really want to move. If you've ever built a house, you understand that if they get the foundation wrong, everything else is in trouble. And so you start here and you understand that's why um, they started, it says they devoted themselves to the teaching. And really what they're saying in the life of the church is that um, when you experience this new life that God breathed in them, that what they said immediately was, what then should we do? And they moved them into the church where they committed to the teaching, which is where they began to have their life reshaped and reformed. And so they began to learn how to live in this new way of life that came from Jesus. And so that meant that my preferences and my ideas and the ways that I think about things, and when I look at the world around me, but my friends, my family, my work, my identity, my culture, all experience a new way of seeing. I begin to see all of those things in a new way, and that is ultimately that the, the primary shape of, shaper of my mind and of my heart are gonna come through the truth of God's word not from others. But do you, do you see why the church, why this is so important in the life of the church? That somehow we have to have a foundation that we build the life of the church on. And what scripture says is that doesn't actually kill a church, that brings real vitality. That brings society transformation. That brings cultural change. That actually brings a joyful, glad-hearted connection around the word of God that the people, uh, that, that they actually enjoyed. You didn't have to tell them to open their Bibles. You didn't have to like, pull them into a Bible study. You didn't have to beg them to jump in. They were just like, God gave me new life and he's breathed this new thing in me. And I just know that everything I tried to do before didn't work. And God's given, he's kind of opened my eyes and I experienced this new thing. And if he tells me about that new life in this book, then I want to know this book so that I know how to live further into that new life. And that's what, the centered, what they centered the, around the church. But Joseph says they devoted themselves to the teaching. They also devoted themselves to what? To the fellowship. And the word fellowship really means shared community. It means, it comes from a word called quantania that talks about sharing things in common. And so when the spirit came down upon the church and birthed this new life, he wasn't just doing that to give individuals freedom to do their own thing but ultimately the spirit was coming down to build a, an entirely new community. And so they experienced the fellowship, which is mutual connection and commitment. They were invested in one another and they shared uh, life together. And there's this practical expression of their new life. But it's interesting that that didn't just spontaneously happen, did it? That they devoted themselves to the community, to the fellowship, meaning they, they invested themselves in it. They committed themselves to it. They worked at it. It didn't just kind of spontaneously 
come out in this Kwanania happy or, or kumbaya happy world. Like that's just not what happens with the church. It's not like everyone gets saved and a fire starts and everyone starts singing kumbaya and hugging and it's all happy. You know, that may happen in some places with some additional medicinal things for a short amount of time. But that's not what the church is. The church is a group of people that the Spirit has birthed new life in and it brought them into a new community and they devote themselves to learning to walk together as a family. And so they move in deeper relationships of joy, honesty, humility, mutual care. When did they get together? Like all the time, right? Where did they get together? Pretty much anywhere they could. It was like they got together at the temple, they got together at the house, house to house. They, uh, what did they do? They shared meals, they prayed, they got around the word. They, there was this life that was lived amongst the people. They shared their needs. They were honest and authentic about, man, I've got some struggles right now. And people were like, man, I think I can help you with that. And so there was this kind of reciprocity that went between people as they, as they lived out this loving community and connection with one another. Any of you want to be a part of a world like that? That's what the church is ultimately supposed to be. But basically, it's important to understand, we, they met in large groups, and they met in small groups, but there was no version of the faith that existed without the community. There is no following Jesus without the church. There, there, there is no way that you can look at the scriptures and come away with the idea that this is just for me to go home and enjoy for myself. It was always something that was connected to a larger community. In fact, you see this all the way uh, just... Reading a quote, a couple guys wrote this. I thought it was, I thought it was helpful. But he says, there may be religions that come to you in quiet walks in the woods or quietly sitting around with a book or rummaging around in the recesses of your own psyche, but Christianity is not one of them. Christianity is inherently communal. It's a matter of life in the body, the church. Jesus did not call isolated individuals to follow him. He called a group of disciples. Christianity has always been connected as a, group, as, a, as a group activity. In fact, you see what Jesus did. Mark 3.13 says, Jesus went up on the mountain. He called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. That was how he began with his disciples, and they, they were together for three years. As he poured in, and they served together, and they worked together, and he taught them, and they grew together. And then he sent them out to start little groups like that all around the world. 1 Thessalonians 2 says, being, so, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become dear to us. Do you see how these two things go together? You have truth. You have the gospel. You have the teaching. You have doctrine. You have the scriptures. And it always is lived out in the context of fellowship, the community, those whom we were affectionately desirous of, and they're never separated. So they devoted themselves to the teaching and they devoted themselves to the fellowship, but those two always are two sides of one coin. Biblically, they always go together. And I love that it says when Jesus, he called those to him whom he, what? Desired. Not he called those to him whom he was going to put up with. He called those to him he wanted to have a relationship with. When Paul writes in Thessalonians, we were affectionately desirous of you. We loved you. And so in the context of this loving community, that's where truth stays alive in our lives. And uh, you see how both are essential. Verse 42, you see what they did. The breaking of bread and the prayers. Uh, you notice this is the breaking of bread and the prayers. There probably was some formal aspect to this. So breaking of bread uh, likely had two different meanings. One, it was, uh, it was just 
dude, let's have a meal. Let's grab some chips and queso. Let's hang out. Let's share a meal. Let's pass, uh, you know, pass the, the servings around the table and all have a shared meal together. But there's also was a, was a part of that meal that was likely the Lord's Supper. And so they would come and there would be a time of communion where they would break bread remembering that Jesus died for them and they would drink a glass and kind of raise a toast to Jesus because he shed his blood for them. And so as a part of this kind of shared meal, they would often stop and remember through that specific deal of the Lord's Supper of communion what it was that centered them and what brought them together. And part of what they're saying is our quantania, our fellowship, our connection is grounded in the person of Jesus. He's the one that brought us together. And so they would share in the breaking of bread. They also shared in prayers. There were probably a liturgical kind of practice of prayers. They would go to the temple and they would practice these formal prayers. They would meet at times of prayer and they would participate in those things as they had always done. But then there were likely also just informal times of prayer where they were gathered in the houses and they were like, man, you've got this need. Let's pray for you. Let's pray for our city. Let's pray for the spirit to give us boldness to tell people about Jesus. Let's pray that God's, uh, that this thing that God is doing would continue to, to, to add to our number daily people whose souls are saved forever, for all of eternity. And so they sought the Lord in those things, but a community of prayer is something that you see throughout the New Testament, that when God breathes new life into people, prayer shows up because he's the one who cut their heart. He's the one who began this work. He's the one who made them a new creation. So their life is, is connected to him. You know, it's interesting when someone is born, um, you, don't, you don't have to tell them to breathe. You don't have to tell a baby that he's hungry because there's things that they naturally desire and hunger to do. And so when a child is birthed, you wait and you look and you wait for that moment when they go, <gasps> and they have that outside breath for the first time because they need it, they desire it. Prayer is the same thing for a Christian. That when you have new life, that the Spirit is birthed in you, there ought to be a sense that when you pray, it's like going, <gasps> God is my life. God breathed his spirit into me and gave me new life. And so there's a sense of, of being enlivened through prayer. Verse 43 says, an awe came upon every soul. They were amazed. Awe is another word for fear, meaning they were a little bit nervous. They were a little bit, they were a little bit like just on edge with all the excitement of what was happening. It says that signs and wonders were being done through the apostles and those miracles were part of a bigger picture. They were signs that affirmed the message of Jesus and they were affirming these apostles so that they would trust the teaching of the apostles. And so we see that they devoted themselves to the teaching and these miracles were happening that were kind of like putting neon lights around their teaching going, this stuff is true. You should listen to this. And it was kind of the point. You have any of you on Twitter and you know what the blue check mark is? And what's the blue check mark signify? That you're verified, right? What scripture teaches is that the miracles and the signs and the wonders were the blue check mark on the apostles that these guys are truly sent by God. They're verified. They've been attested. They, they've been affirmed as those that have the divine power within them. And so they are free, or not within them, but, but with them and present with them so that they also are those that we should listen to. It's why they devoted themselves to their teaching. And because of that, it says that this ongoing sense of wonder, of respectful, reverent, kind of uh, careful fearfulness was at work at the mystery of all that God was doing in the midst of the people. In verse 44, and all who were believed were together. That word together means a couple different things. One, it's 
like they were actually just together. Uh, but it also means more than that, that they were of one mind and one heart, that they were together as a group of people and they were united. Um, the, this community was really functioning and with appropriate love and compassion. Uh, what does a loving community do when they see someone in need? And they just roll out. Like, hey, how, how can we help with that? And they're like, man, I got something I can sell off over here. I'll go give you something over there. And as they surfaced in this community that was now over 3,000 people, uh, it's interesting that they had to incorporate these people and, and follow it up pretty quickly. We talk in ministry like, you know, what do you do when a guest comes? And we talk about guest follow-up. And we talk about, you know, we, we, we get up and we say these things on stage every week. Like, man, if you'd fill out a connect card, we'd love to know who you are. Um, I don't know how that worked for them. But 3,000 people showed up in one day and somehow they got them all connected. And they managed to get them all in communities enough that for the people that, that had needs, they surfaced and they were aware of, man, this, this, this single mom has a need or this, this guy over here is out of work or, man, this guy you know, came to faith and lost his job and this thing happened. And so they began to just say, how do we mutually care for one another and, and invest in the lives of those around us? And they made sacrifices, right? There was a sacrificial service of others. So they're financially supporting but it says that some of those were selling even their own belongings and distributing the proceeds as much as anyone had need. And this was an amazing, alive community. It was not something that was pressed down upon them as rules. These were just voluntary people that out of love said, man, can I help you with that? I'd love to be able to help you with that problem or that situation. This is what happens when people experience a radical love from God that pierces them at their very core the natural, normal thing for them to do is to say, wow, God was so gracious and so generous to me. I'm amazed by what he's done. I'm so overjoyed with that. Let me do that for you in a practical way. And because I've received from him, I wanna give to someone else. And so they were constantly, you notice it says that they were praising God and they were serving one another. All these things went together. So they're devoting themselves to the truth. They're devoting themselves to fellowship. They're sharing meals. They're praying together. They're praising God together. They're seeing needs. And through the relationships they've established, they're, they're caring for one another, having compassion on one another, and coming alongside one another. And you, when that happens, you, there's just life in a community, isn't there? There's a hunger and a desire. And so in that experience of that, notice what happens in verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. It's interesting in Acts 2, gladness shows up three different times. Uh, but you notice that no one's having to beg them to connect. Uh, they're not having to like squeeze them into connections. It just says day by day, they were getting together where? And they got together in the temple, they got together over there, wherever they could, they were gathering. And it was not something that was this programmatic, forcing your hand to do something. But there was this kind of spontaneous enjoyment of it. But it's interesting in Acts 2, it talks about gladness three different times. It says uh, that the people were glad. It says, my heart was glad in verse 26. Verse 28, it says, you make me God. Your presence makes me full of gladness. Verse 46, that they had glad hearts. There's joy in a community that when God cuts us to the heart and you recognize that, man, I've run off on my own way, but God in his mercy has redeemed me and through his son has forgiven me of my sin and he's taken up residence in me in his Holy Spirit, the natural, normal overflow of that is joy. It's gladness. We should always be a glad community. It's one of the reasons why uh, Chris and I, when we kind of build the liturgy of what we do, we try to end on a song that's joyful. 
because we want to remind you every single week that yes, sometimes there's lament. Yes, sometimes there's confession. Yes, there's need for repentance. Yes, there's need for me to confess that, man, I've gone my own way again. I've tripped and fallen down again. I need the grace of God to lift me up again. But all of that ultimately leads us to a place of going, God, you're amazing. I can't believe you loved me in spite of me. And you've taken up residence through your spirit inside of me and you've given me forgiveness of sins, not because of anything I did, not because of me, but because of Jesus. In experiencing all that, there ought to be joy. And so we focus everything towards the end in joy and gladness. And he mentions generosity. I actually think the better translation there is not generous hearts, but sincere hearts, humble hearts, authentic hearts. It is actually a better translation of the words. They had glad and humble, sincere hearts. Their faith was not a put on, but it was something that was real. And then you notice in verse 47 what happens. They had favor with all the people, meaning all the people outside the church looked upon them favorably, which is pretty interesting because we know from, we know from history that there was uh, oftentimes church was ostracized, oftentimes it was persecuted. We know that, that the religious leaders bucked up against this new movement that seemed to push against the way that they went. And yet somehow they enjoyed, people looked upon them and said, who those people are and the relationships they share has my appreciation and my admiration. There was something about the life in the church that they also looked at and said, I kind of want to know more about that. I kind of want to taste and see what that whole, that whole thing is about. Now, here's the thing about the early church. This community displayed the highest aspirations of all humanity. When you think about what humans are designed to do, togetherness, sharing, joy, worship, purpose, all of these are essential for human flourishing, and all of these were present in the early church. And so when the outside world looked at it, they went, there's something in me that feels like I was made for that, because they were. They all bear the image of God and they were designed to live in this kind of a way and to walk in this kind of a community. It's what we were created for. It's why the church ought to always be infectious on those around us. And then in verse 47, you see the outcome. The Lord added to the number day by day those who are being saved. God continued to bring new life to those people. Friends, Luke leaves no doubt that this kind of community life is essential to the mission of the church. That our evangelism rings hollow if we don't live it out in this room. And what brings life to church is ultimately the teaching, the truth, and the life of the community and the fellowship. And those two always go together. And when they're together, there's always life in a community. Friends, that's what we want to be about. So how do we apply with this? Let me just ask you this. Do you desire the kind of life and community that we read about in Acts 2? See, I think there's a danger that sometimes we, a church can have the form of something but not have the life in it. Um, any of you like to hunt? You can raise your hands. Some of you guys. Where's Jesse Swindell? I know Jesse's a big old hunter. You know, when you think about this, uh, how many of you have seen what, what taxidermy do? You know, there's a, there's a version of a, of a church that's a taxidermy church. Um, that when you think about what happens with an animal that's, that's been killed and then you stuff it and it looks like the real thing but there's no life to it. Uh, those things honestly kind of creep me out. I mean, they kind of, re kind of respect them at the front end. But then you see a deer and like at some point he's like all matted and stuff starts turning yellow and like the stuff starts looking gross and you're just like, dude, that's not very exciting. 
But if you go hunting, the thing about it is those animals are majestic and they're amazing. And I know, I know Jesse Swindell has got, uh, has been on these African hunts and he's got a whole room full of these animals that are astounding and amazing. But the thing is, none of them hold a candle to the real thing in the wild. None of them hold a candle to walking through the mountains and seeing an elk and seeing the majesty of that creature that's there. But when it's stuffed and it's dead and there's no life in it, what do you do? You put it in the spare bedroom somewhere and you try to hide it where your wife doesn't have to look at it because she doesn't want to see it. Friends, which church do we want to be? Do we want to be the stuffed church that has the form and the appearance of something but no life, no majesty, no mystery, no awe? That's not who we want to be. We want to be a church that's alive. And here's the question I have for you. If you've never experienced the things or have these evidences of new life in, your, uh, in you, you've never experienced a new day, it might mean that you're not a Christian. It might mean that you've never been cut to the heart with the gospel and experienced the forgiveness of sins and the new life of the Spirit in you. And you may need to trust him today. And if you are someone who says, man, I've tasted those things before, but I just, I don't sense them now. They don't feel alive in me. Maybe a good question to ask, why not? What's, what's going on in your heart that needs to be stirred up and reminded of the grace of God and the gospel? What, what, what ha- needs to happen in your heart that needs to awaken you again to the majesty and the beauty of a God who loves you and sent his son to die for you and sent his spirit to live in you and says that all of the sins and all the wrongs and all the things that you did to create the mess of your life, I have taken upon myself to give you new life so that you have righteousness of Christ and you can stand in that and you have a new identity and you're a part of a new family and you're given a new mission and you're given a new day because you're a new creation experiencing an entirely new way of life. Some of us need to stir that up in our hearts again so that we begin to be fully devoted to the teaching and to the fellowship. Let me just end with this. I think good questions for us to ask. Are you devoted to learning the truth? Are you devoted to loving the community? Are you devoted to worshiping with joy, to serving with sacrifice, to sharing the good news? We sometimes talk about believe, belong, grow, go, however you wanna capture that today. That's what Acts 2 is about. Saying if God has given us a new day, in a new community, then let's walk in it. But let's do it with life, something that's full of gladness and full of joy, full of care for one another, full of love for one another, that's grounded upon the strong foundation of the truth. And in that, we'll have, um, we'll have a good day. And we'll have another day. And we'll have another day. And by God's grace, we'll have favor with those around us, and he'll add people to our number day by day.